I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we get to dive deep into some of the most interesting books on food, politics, and culture with the authors themselves. This month, we are bringing you the just-released Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement, written by Dr. Monica White. At Real Food Media, we believe that stories have power and that sharing our stories builds communities and movements. In Freedom Farmers, Dr. Monica shares a carefully researched and formative story of black liberation through agriculture. So often when we think about the history of black people as it relates to agriculture, we think of slavery. We think of oppression. Yet there's another story, one of innovation, of community, and of persistence. Dr. Monica White, activist scholar and assistant professor of environmental justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is here today to tell us this other story. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. (laughs) So, Dr. Monica, I just want to start um, by asking you, what made you decide to write about black farmers? Sure. I'm really grateful that we have a chance to do this interview, especially during Black History Month, and grateful for an opportunity to talk to you about this. The story of uh, black farmers has been overlooked. I wrote this book to offer a different narrative on the perspective of black farmers historically and the reasons that African Americans are returning to food production today. So I think that the story of black farmers has suffered from what Chimananda Adichie calls the danger of a single story, right? Mm-hmm. So much of what we know about black farmers, as you mentioned, is one of oppression, slavery, and tenant farming. But I wanted to offer something different in my work as a food justice activist and as a scholar. I wanted to document the story of their love of the land, their agricultural and environmental knowledge, and their contributions to the nation. But more specifically, I wanted to concentrate on their work involved in the civil rights movement and the black freedom movement. So as our famed author uh, Toni Morrison said, if there's a story that you want to read but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And so that is the book that we're talking about today. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so could you tell Thank us you. a little bit about that relationship between agriculture and the civil rights movement? So, yes, there has been a really rich history of African-Americans using food as a strategy for freedom. We can think and talk about the Middle Passage, where we braided seeds in our hair uh, as contraband to the New World. Uh, We can also talk about the negotiation of what we call provision grounds and slave gardens during slavery, where we were able to grow food crops that provided an important nutritional benefit for us during slavery. We then used that surplus and created these markets. Market days, one you might be familiar with is like Congo Square. So Mm -hmm. on Sunday, the day where we were released from work, folks created a whole market. There was music, there was culture, there were traditional religions. And so this was a space for us to practice not only the foods that to enjoy, not only the foods that we consume, but also part of our culture that we left behind. And so for me, just thinking about the role of food, food production, food distribution, and markets, there's a rich history that hasn't been folded into the narrative of the food justice Mm -hmm. frame. And I think that many of us don't know it. And so offering this in one book just sort of carries all of this information, talks about the ways that black farmers have created cooperatives and collectives, and even think today about the use of agriculture as a strategy to rebuild sustainable communities like in Detroit, Chicago, and Milwaukee. Um, I want to go back to something you said in the very beginning of this, which was um, seeds in our hair. Could you elaborate that on a little bit more, please? Sure, sure. There's a recent video that went um, that went kind of went viral where African women who were abducted for the slave trade 
would, uh, knowing that they were set for travel, would take seeds that were cultural uh, and indigenous to where they were from and would literally plait them into the braids um, as a way to carry with them a piece of culture and a piece of home. And so there's a piece that was written by Judith Carney, and it was not only a part of an oral history, right, that, that, that even farmers today, traditional farmers today, uh, Mr. Burkett, um, who's a third-generation farmer in Mississippi, tells the story that he was told about carrying seeds in our hair through the Middle Passage and how important that was as a strategy of freedom. And so we found that a lot of the crops, particularly rice that was grown in the South, had come from West Africa, and those were the seeds that were brought over in that way. As a reminder of home, as a part of culture, and I think it was, since it was contraband, I think it was definitely a strategy of resistance. So you mentioned that farming for is like more than a way of just growing food, and it's more than a way yes. of connecting to culture. It's a form of That's resistance. Right. So right, can you speak right. more about the specific type of resistance? Sure. So I think that typically when you think about resistance, people talk about protest marches and boycotts. At least that's what the social movement scholars talk about, right? And so if I resist, I think you're holding something from me or holding me down, then I would act against you. For me, that's only one face of what resistance really looks like, right? So I think that agriculture as a strategy of resistance is something that you look at and you don't necessarily see it as resistance. But for those who are involved in growing food, they absolutely see what they're doing as a part or a way for them to work toward freedom. One of the farmers that I work with, Reverend Paris, says you can free yourself when you can feed yourself. Mm -hmm. And so for him, whoever is responsible for providing you with your food also gets to determine the conditions and the grounds upon which you will be fed. And so I see this history of African-Americans particularly using food as a strategy of resistance to recreate community, mm -hmm. to talk and think in ways of community wellness, to increase access to nutrient-rich foods, but really as, a, as only one mechanism or one vehicle by which a community can be uh, resilient and work toward liberation. So in this book, we go from like the historical South and like Alabama to present day Detroit, and you have all of these examples of resistance and of liberation. Can you tell us about a particularly inspiring example? Absolutely. I think that the example of Freedom Farm that Mrs. Hamer created mm -hmm. is a beautiful example of what this kind of resistance looks like. So if you think about um, during the late 60s, while we were negotiating or fighting for the right to vote, um, and Mrs. Hamer was such a vocal opponent for African-American right to vote, what happened was you can have legislation, but then there's also a fallout from going and voting. And so for many tenant farmers and sharecroppers, their decision to vote then rendered uh, the punishment for that was that those who owned the land would fire them and evict them, and their housing mm -hmm. and employment were a condition of their um, staying on the land. And so if I go and vote, and then because I vote, I'm now evicted and homeless, um, Mrs. Hamer created Freedom Farm. And in creating Freedom Farm, that then offered housing, offered health care, education, retraining, mobile medical units, community gardens, all of this um, using the resources that we had, which really were rooted in um, knowledge of growing food, feeding ourselves. And what she did was she created Freedom Farm as an example of a community-based cooperative where we were um, working toward collective wellness, community wellness, or what I call community self-determination and community self-reliance. So this is another example of a flipping of the script and changing the popular narrative. 
What do you think are some of the reasons um, or the barriers to the full story being told from the beginning? So, yes, I think that there, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of investment in the single story. Mm-hmm. As, uh, and so I think that we have invested so much in talking about why African-Americans don't grow food that we really don't recognize that there have been African-Americans who stayed on the land. And there's even this current resurgence of or a reverse migration, so to speak, of mm-hmm. African-Americans that are moving from cities and going back to land that they've inherited, or, or, you know, property that they've inherited, and trying to figure out, like, how do they put it into production? How are they able to sort of live in these rural communities? And so if we ignore or if we, you know, move beyond the single story sort of narrative, I think that there are also other barriers um, that stand between us being able to tell a full whole story of the important contributions that African-American farmers have contributed to the nation. One, we can talk about lack of records. If you're talking and thinking about black farmers, we also have to know that it was illegal for African-Americans to go to school. So not having access to education then made it difficult to actually take keep records of the kinds of organizations that they were maintaining. But not actually having access to records makes it difficult to tell the story. In addition to the fact that uh, there are several archives that have been approached with collections that are not able to accept papers from various organizations. There's a loss of memory. Uh, We Mm -hmm. have limited repositories of agricultural and environmental knowledge. Um, And the purpose of this book was really to sort of challenge all of that and to unearth voices of centuries of black laborers who um, have never received their justice. Do. Mm, okay. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. So this disconnection from from the full story has an impact mm-hmm. on obviously black farmers today, but also black eaters um, in the mm-hmm. U.S. today. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yes. Yeah, so I think that today is a really difficult time to talk about farmers in general. So there are certain kinds of issues that all small farmers experience that are particularly difficult right now. We can talk about accessing land, supplies, labor, finding markets. All of these are then exacerbated by race and the size of the producer. So if we think about the problems that all farmers face, um, all small farmers face, um, the historical legacies of race complicate the resources and make farming for African Americans even more progressively difficult. Mm-hmm. I think that when we have access to lot to black farmers, the food we consume is more wholesome and more nutritious. And not having access to a connection between the food producers in the South and the consumers often seen in the North, mm-hmm. then our diets are often reflective of what we have access to, which would be our commercially processed high fat, high sugar, easily accessible kinds of food. Mm -hmm. I do think that the current food justice movement is doing tremendous leaps and bounds in terms of returning us to, you know, food production and food preparation and food preservation. But a part of this disconnect between us actually growing food in the South and consuming in the North has been complicated by the disconnect of what happened in terms of the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit more about what happened during the Great Migration? Sure. So the ag industry was largely mechanized. And so the migration came about as a result of uh, a decreased need for black labor. Mm -hmm. And so in my opinion, it wasn't just that folks were not 
growing food, but the institutions that we created were destroyed. Extended black families were destroyed. Um, many of us walked away from land that we inherited. We also walked away from the knowledge of food production, from knowing our neighbor, and, you know, the common slogan of knowing our farmer, knowing our food, mm -hmm. then becomes much more complicated as a result of the Great Migration. So if we think about this, not just as folks, you know, picking up and leaving, but also as a, a disconnect between the relationships between our relationship to each other and our relationship to food and what does that mean? I think that the Great Migration had a tremendous amount of effect, and I don't believe that we really have a full accounting of what that looks like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you spoke just now about relationships, and um, you came up with this really compelling framework called Collective Agency and Community Resilience, and I feel like it's very much relationship-based. So can you mm -hmm. tell us about this framework and what it sure. means? So as part of the data, I kept an analysis of all the activities that these various cooperatives engaged in. And then once I had a list of all the kinds of activities that they engaged in, I then categorized them thematically in terms of what did it sound like they were doing. And we came up with a theoretical framework called Collective Agency and Community Resilience. Mm -hmm. To me, as a theoretical framework, Collective Agency and Community Resilience is a way to explain the ways that organizations operated and provided a strategy of freedom through their respective communities. Agency is often understood and studied as a psychological construct, right? It's the decision that I'm going to do some behavior that's going to impact my social, political, or economic outcome. But what happens when a community comes together and demonstrates their own agency? I don't think that agency has been studied in a form that explains why and how mm -hmm. folks in Detroit are taking over vacant lots and then creating these community growing spaces. Resilience is often understood as what happens after catastrophic event. Mm -hmm. I think that so much attention is given to what behaviors people engage in once a catastrophic event occurs that I don't think that we really understand and examine the structural forces that actually cause some communities to be more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so collective agency and community resilience offer three different kinds of strategies. Mm -hmm. One is prefigurative politics. Prefigurative politics would explain why and how organizations in the 60s, when they were denied the right to vote, within their organizations, they acted as if, so to speak. So while I can't vote for a mayor or governor, I may be able to, within my organization, get to vote for leadership. And mm -hmm. that kind of activity and participation within the organization then shows me how to engage in the political process. Commons as practice is another strategy. And here we're talking and thinking about how do we make decisions about those resources that we share. So commons as practice would talk about what kinds of seeds do we use? What kind of land are we going to use? Where does the water come from? What mm -hmm. kind of fertilizers? Mm -hmm. Recognizing that this isn't individually owned, but this is collectively owned. And this commons as practice allows us to make collective decisions for our collective outcome. So it's shared decision making and shared resources. Exactly. Exactly. And then the economic autonomy just is an effort to try to function in as much of an independent way as we possibly can and that way sort of benefit from the fruits of our labor. And so usually thinking about alternative methods like bartering mm -hmm. or labor exchange, those kinds of ideas. Um, uh, at D-Town, we have D-Town dollars. Um, mm -hmm. But just creating some way so that the exchange is one that feeds us and is regenerative as opposed to an extractive method of Yes. The, so the three main strategies for collective agency mm -hmm. and community resilience, again, are commons as practice, so shared resources, mm -hmm. shared decision-making, yep. prefigurative politics, which is carving out an alternative for yourself 
in this in make creating policies or Sure. It's really political participation. So Commons mm-hmm. is practice is shared resources. Mm-hmm. Prefigurative politics is making this shared decision-making. Mm-hmm. And economic autonomy would be the funding source, right? How do we create a way to, to take care of ourselves economically mm-hmm. in a way that is less dependent and more independent mm-hmm. Okay. and regenerative? Yes. Regenerative is, feels like it's key there. Could you give mm-hmm. us an example of collective agency and community resilience in action? Sure. So I think that there um, are plenty of examples all across the country that are doing these kinds of collective activities. I can speak most specifically about the organization that I'm most closely aligned with, Mm -hmm. and that would be Detroit and the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which is an organization that I've been involved with for several years. They seem to be, organizationally, it is an example of what collective agency and community resilience looks like on the ground. Mm -hmm. So um, we're talking and thinking about prefigurative politics, which is where all decisions that are made by the organizations, an overwhelming majority of those decisions are made by the collective. And so we have meetings and, you know, folks are um, informed as to what our options are. And there is an intent to make sure that we hear and engage as many people as possible um, in terms of how we make this collective decisions. Thomas's Praxis um, is also another example where we ask for feedback in terms of how do we determine how the land will be used, where will we place certain kinds of activities and those things that are necessary for the farm. And in terms of economic autonomy, uh, we have D-Town dollars. And so if you volunteer at D-Town, then you get D-Town dollars and you can use that in exchange for the produce um, at the market. And so I think mm-hmm. that there's several organizations around the country um, that are involved in active, uh, that could be examples, but that would be the one that I'm most familiar with. Mm. Could you remind me who um, who founded D-Town? So there were several founders of the Detroit Black mm-hmm. Community Food Security Network. Malik Yakini uh, was the um, lead in calling together a, a group of people uh, wanting to make sure that African Americans were a part of the resurgence of the urban ag movement in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so we recognized Malik Yakini and several other founders as the organizers who, who led that initiative. Mm-hmm. So something that I really enjoyed throughout reading this book and then also um, reading Farming While Black was just this acknowledgement and how cooperatives are so black. And then to know that this history is actually uh, this like history of cooperatives and like shared decision making and shared resources actually rooted in in black farming has been so powerful. And is yet again another example of this changing of the popular narrative and and minimizing the danger of a single story. That's right. And Dr. Nimhart's book on uh, called Collective Courage, she does an amazing job of really sort of documenting the use of the collective and cooperative historically over decades, right? And so she has this really beautiful book that I, I owe a lot of gratitude to her for her uh, groundbreaking work in placing African-Americans within the context as an economist. Here, is the, here are the ways that we have used this as an economic strategy for freedom. Can you tell us about something that was especially impactful for you as you were conducting this research and writing this book, like a moment that just stood out or that gives you chills? So I'll give you one example. I was having a a difficult time writing Mrs. Hamer's chapter because I felt so committed to making sure I got the story right. And Mm -hmm. so I called one of my colleagues here. His name is Jack Kloppenberg. And I went over to I said, Jack, I'm struggling. Uh, I need you to help me think through this. 
And so he said, oh, come on over. So I went over, and as a part of a gift that he had gotten from donating to Wisconsin Public Radio, Mm -hmm. he received a book. And the book was written by Franklin Peterson. Well, Franklin Peterson was a photographer who had gone throughout the country documenting the civil rights movement and the black power movement. Hmm. And I had made note of an article that he had written on Mrs. Hamer, and I just really felt warm about the way he described her work. So I get over to Jack's house, and Jack shows me the book, and the chapter um, describes Mrs. Hamer as the smartest woman he ever knew. Mm. So right automatically, you feel that there is this connection between me and Mr. Peterson. So we looked in the front of the book, his phone number and his address. He lived around the corner from Jack. Amazing. (laughs) So we called him. He says, hey, come on over. He's um, 80 now. Um, And so he had all these pictures of Mrs. Hamer, and you know, was really helpful. He had uh, allowed me to use pictures that he had taken and has been a supporter of, uh, of my work as an extension of hers. And just, you know, to me, it just, this one example just captures how you don't know how things unfold. I've always read the acknowledgments and I've always wondered, wow, you know, when you read mm-hmm. acknowledgments, you're like, oh, and then they asked him to sleep on their couch or <laughs> we have this close relationship. And I was saying to myself, I really hope I have that kind of relationship when I'm writing this book. And so to meet Mr. Peterson and to have, you know, now have a, a relationship with someone who actually knew Mrs. Hamer, just really an honor and just helps me to feel like um, at least I was on the right path. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful serendipity. <laughs> So I've been thinking lately a lot about music and how it moves people, uh, literally and figuratively. If the agricultural resistance and black freedom movement had a soundtrack, what would one of the songs be? One song that I thought of um, is Harvest for the World, but it really does sort of talk about uh, the importance of making sure that everyone has access to nutrient-rich food. Mm -hmm. And the other one, the other song, was a CD that Stevie Wonder put out. Um, may have been like in the 80s, called The Secret Life of Plants. Ooh. But it was just really sort of um, talking about the importance of plants and importance of a relationship with the environment. Mm-hmm. And coming from Stevie Wonder, who's also uh, from Detroit, as I am, mm-hmm. um, it just really resonated for me as a child, um, the music and the push for us to reconnect to uh, the environment, to the earth. Mm. Thank you for sharing those songs. So thank you, Dr. Monica, for joining us for an episode of Real Food Reads. This podcast is being recorded at the Center for Investigative Reporting. And please make sure to check out any of our other episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud at Real Food Reads or on our website at realfoodmedia.org. 